Chapter 4 begins for the Jews the process of the hard work that's going to be necessary. Chapter 4 is challenging uh, for us, I think, because the title of our sermon today, it's The Schemes of the Enemy. Because what we'll find is, whereas you may be excited about some new work and some new commitment that you have, the vast majority of people that we encounter are not going to be as excited. And the enemy, in one form or another, is going to do everything that he can to knock us down and to sort of get us off track of where it is that we're trying to go. So hopefully, over this last week, based maybe even on last week's sermon, and just what God is doing, hopefully during this last week, you've stepped out, you've taken the next step, you've begun the process to follow God's leading. And I I wonder, and I suspect, actually, if you've done that, you've probably already encountered some difficulty or some opposition along the way. So you began that new diet, and you were doing great. Right up until that evil, devil-incarnate person brought that plate of cookies into your office. And you're thinking, dude, that's just not helpful. Or perhaps on a more serious note, you began to encounter personal turmoil in the form of some unexpected crisis in one form or another. Or maybe... There were even people in your life, people that are your friends, and maybe they did it on purpose or just by accident, a co-worker, whatever it may be, a family member, that rose up and either purposefully or innocently began to speak words which had ultimately the effect of discouraging you from your best efforts. And so today what we're going to see is this, and this is the first lesson you can jot down, is that none of that should be unexpected. That the first thing that we should kind of nail down and that it's good for us to know that in this life, that our best intentions will not typically be met with great fanfare and words of encouragement from the world that is around us. And sadly, more often than not, our efforts are going to be met by adversaries of diverse kinds that are seeking to sidetrack us from the good work that God wants to do within us. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 4. So if you look at verse 1, notice how it begins. It says, Now... When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached the rubble and the heads of their father's houses. The first lesson here is the adversaries are out there. The adversaries could care less about the nation of Israel when they returned to the land and they went and did their own little thing at their homes and sort of getting their homes in place. But once they commit themselves to the work of God, the adversaries rise up. They're not interested in their particular success. They took notice. They're listening. They're observing you and your life or your church and your church's life. And they're devising plans to derail us. And look, I'm not paranoid. All right? You think, man, dude, you know, take a pill or something. I'm not paranoid. Uh, this is just the way it is. And I think many of us can say essentially, amen. I agree. And in many cases, it goes beyond people in our lives and instead is the world system that is around us. Not a, a particular person, but a world system that it stands opposed to God. A world system that's going in the opposite direction of God and God's ways, and thus stands directly opposed to all that God wants to do in our lives and in the life of our church. Sometimes the adversary is our own flesh, our own sin nature, which wants what it wants when it wants it. And this is why the Apostle Paul said, And he taught us, he said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Things like sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. All of those things are idolatry. 
So sometimes our adversary are people, sometimes it's a world system, sometimes it's ourself. And we also learn from the Scripture that the devil himself is our greatest adversary. 1 Peter 3 refers to it this way. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the adversaries are out there. And I think chapter 4 of Ezra allows us to glean some insight into some of the many strategies of the adversary that the adversary will use to derail us from the progress that the Lord is seeking to bring in each of our lives. And the adversaries, as I said earlier, they were content to leave us alone when we were doing our own thing. But once we purpose ourselves to the things of God, we purpose ourselves to a steady quiet time, we purpose ourselves to more involvement in a a church or the things of the Lord, we purpose ourselves to this thing or that thing that the Lord is directing us, suddenly the adversaries rise up. You left me alone before, but now you're present. As soon as we get committed about the things of God and following the lessons of God or the leading of God, the adversaries surface. So lesson one, don't be surprised. When you encounter opposition standing in the way of you accomplishing what God wants to accomplish in your life, don't be surprised. In fact, you should expect opposition. Now, Israel and the area of Jerusalem in particular When the children of Israel were taken out of the land into captivity, Israel was not left utterly abandoned. Remember what we talked about is how they like to move other people around into those particular areas. So when the Jews arrived, there were other people groups that were in that particular area who had relocated, they had migrated to the area and filled it, um, partially albeit, but they filled it nonetheless, the vacancy that Israel, the Jewish people left from that particular land. One such group was a group of people called the Samaritans. Now, you've probably heard about the Samaritans. You know that one of them, at least, was good. Um, you're familiar with that particular line there. Um, but Ezra chapter 4, 2, notice the second portion of the verse. Uh, this group of people are going to come. They're going to say, let us build with you, for we worship you as your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezrahardan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. And so, that's the Samaritan people. And again, we have some familiarity with the term, probably because of the story of the Good Samaritan. But in actual fact, very few of the Jews would look upon the Samaritans as good. And that's likely the reason in the New Testament when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan that he chooses to use a Samaritan to make his particular point. Very few of the Jews appreciated or liked the Samaritan people. There was a great deal of disdain. The Samaritan people were seen as half-breeds, which is a derogatory term that they applied to this group of people for a couple of reasons. Number one is because these were a descendant, these were the descendants of a foreign people that intermarried with some of the Jews. And so they didn't like that. These were foreign people that intermarried. Secondly, it's because they mixed in with the Jewish ideas of worship, they mixed in foreign pagan religious ideas as well. So they were sort of these half-breeds, quote-unquote. And as I mentioned a few studies ago, one of the methods of the Assyrian Empire, which came right before the Babylonian Empire, was to conquer a people of a land and shuffle people around from one locale to another. So when the Assyrians conquered the northern area of Israel, that was around the year 722 AD, they brought all of these folks in. We read about this, 2 Kings 15. I have it for the screen for you. It says, in, those days of, in the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, 
Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and he captured and now a bunch of cities, Aijan, Abel, Beth Makkah, Janoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all of the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Verse 6 of that of 2 Kings 17 says, Now in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah and in the Habor, the river of Gazan, and in the city of Medes. So from those two verses there in those two chapters, we see that the vast majority of the children of Israel were moved out, which leaves room now for new people groups to be moved in. So we read about that a little later in 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 24. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cathah, Alva, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and he placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria, and they lived in its cities. And so we have a map here just to give you a kind of an idea where in Israel, sort of just right in the middle there of Israel, this is where all these foreign people are brought and placed, and they become known as the Samaritans. And everyone lived happily ever after. Not exactly. Soon, these new inhabitants of Samaria began to experience all sorts of calamities within this new land, difficulties. And it's interesting, they attribute, probably superstitiously, but they attribute all these difficulties to the gods of the land. We don't know how to worship the gods of this land. That's why all of these calamities and difficulties are coming upon us. And so, if you look at 2 Kings 17.25, it seems the Lord a little bit agrees with that. It says, And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Continuing, So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria, they do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them, and behold, they're killing them. The lions are killing the people because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Verse 27, So the king of Assyria commanded, will send there one of the priests, the Jewish folks, whom you carried away from there, so that they can go back and teach these new inhabitants the law of the God of the land. And verse 28, So one of the priests who had been carried away from Samaria, he came and he lived in Bethel, and he taught them how they should fear the Lord. And we read that and we say, that's great! All these converts, you know, they came to know the Lord and God used lions as His evangelistic tool. And they came to know Him. Sadly, no. It's not great and it's not awesome because these folks didn't convert to the Jewish faith. Instead, they commingled the Jewish faith, which is a very dangerous thing to do. And yet, something that we see happening again and again even in our day. Look down to verse 29 of 2 Kings. Or in your case, look up because I think you're looking at the screen. It said, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon, they made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth, they made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites, they made Nibhaz and Tartak. That's their gods. And the Sepharvites, they burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anamelech the gods of the Sefer Vaim. So these are folks worshiping Jehovah, huh? And yet they're offering their children in the fire, which is an abomination unto the Lord. 
And so they may have a little bit of Judaism there, but they've commingled it with their despicable religious practices. Continuing, it says, they also feared the Lord and they appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Verse 33, so they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away with. And so they feared the Lord, quote unquote, but they also served their own gods, which means they didn't fear the Lord. Because the first commandment we know is you shall have no other gods before me. They commingled the faith, which is exactly what they want to do now here in Ezra chapter 4. So returning now to Ezra chapter 4, it says, Now the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, they heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel. They said, great, another place amongst the many other ones, but another place we can go and we can worship. And so they approached the rubble, the heads of the father's houses, and they said, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him for 120 years, 200 years, ever since the days the king of Assyria brought us here. This is the first method that our adversary is going to seek to employ against us, and that is to get us to compromise or to join ranks with them. Notice again in verse 2, let us build with you, for we worship as you do. Now, are these guys sincere in their uh, motives to join the Jews? Did they come to the Jews as adversaries? Or do they leave as adversaries when the Jews say, no, you can't help us? We don't necessarily know But this sudden change in disposition that we're going to see in verse 3 and following seems to belie their real intent. Hey, we'll be your friends as long as you do everything that we tell you, how you're supposed to do it, and you do it just like we have told you that you have to do it. So it seems that their intent is a negative one here, that actually they want to come in and they want to infiltrate so that they can water down and they can ultimately destroy. Look to verse 3. The people of Israel, as you'll see, led by Zerubbabel, says, no, you know what? We're not interested. In your help. Would their help have been very helpful? Absolutely. How many men do you want to come and send and help us rebuild this place? You guys would be great. But the children of Israel, led by Zerubbabel and Joshua, say no. So you read the verse that says, Now Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us to do. Well, you read that and you say, that's kind of mean. You know, couldn't you find some, well, we need someone to rake the lawn. Could you rake for us or something? That's mean the way they're sounding. Just why not let them help and join? Well, it says they worship the same God, or, or an, an argument you can make, they worship the same God that you do. They're trying to build a temple to that God, and I'm sure there'll be a big help in the whole process. There's a couple of things that we need to address with that sort of thinking, that, that rationalizing that, you know what, this is going to be okay. Number one, the proposal to unite in building the temple was an offer or a solicitation for political unity. Okay, So the first thing is they were soliciting to be one political unit by building this particular, working together to build this project. Alexander McLaren, he said this, the proposal to unite in building the temple was a political move because in old world ideas, cooperation in temple building was incorporation in national unity. 
and forming a political union with a vastly larger foreign people was not something the children of Israel were interested in doing. And certainly it's not something they should have been interested in doing. And so this is the first reason Zerubbabel and Joshua and the others say, no thank you, we're not interested. But a second thing is, we, we should take notice of this claim of the Samaritans. The Samaritans say, we worship God as you do. We've been sacrificing to Him for all of these years as you are planning to do. We've been sacrificing. Really, where have you been sacrificing? Oh, well, we got these high places that we sacrifice on. Really? And the priest never told you that there's only one place where the sacrifice was to take place here at the temple that we're about to rebuild? Which means you weren't obeying. And by the way, who was the one that was doing the sacrificing? Because you didn't have a priest live 200 years. So who was the guy that was doing it? You see, they were violating the very things they said they were. They had watered it down. They had gone their own direction. They had caused the Word of God to say what they wanted the Word of God to say. And the Jews are here responding, look, we're not interested in that, as, that at all. If you've been sacrificing, you haven't been doing it according to the prescribed way of Scripture at the temple by the hands of a priest. And so again, they'll ask the question, where and how exactly have you been sacrificing? You see, to these Samaritans, Jehovah was just one of many gods. And for the children of Israel to partner with them in this work and to join themselves, not just in an alliance, but as a national unit, would have been a colossal mistake. And so these people seem like friendly people. But joining with them would be the ruin of this company of Jewish believers. And the Apostle Paul writes to us in the book of Ephesians that we are to be on our guard against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6.11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is a scheme of the devil. Can he get God's children to compromise? Get them to partner up with someone or some group that is just slightly off just maybe a tick, a two, tick or two or off on sort of the, the GPS there. Just get them to partner up with them. And over a long enough period of time, they're going to be far away from where God ever wanted them to be. Everything will be all right. That phrase, everything will be okay, is exactly why the devil returns to this method again and again and again. Because it works. Getting the children of God to compromise allows the devil to have a foothold in our lives. And once he gets a foothold, everything breaks out from that point on. And so for Zerubbabel and the leaders to have received and encouraged these Samaritans, it certainly would have increased the number of laborers on this big building project. You know the phrase, many hands make light work? Well, certainly it would have made light work, but it would have actually made the Jewish people all the more weaker. Because letting them in would have been granting access to the enemy to enter into the fortress. And so Zerubbabel essentially says, thanks, but no thanks. So the adversaries now, they're not done. The devil is not done. Those that are opposed to you won't be done after one attempt. Well, that was a good shot. I'll move on to somebody else now. They go back to the drawing board. And the same thing is true in our lives as well. So number one is not only should we expect to have opposition in our, in our endeavors to follow the Lord, but we should anticipate that those attacks will come multiple times and in diverse ways. And so moving on to verse 4, we're going to begin to see plans B, C, and D. So the first one, get them to compromise. But now we move on to uh, a host of plans that the enemy is going 
to use. Look at verse 4. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now these are not the only means by which the enemy will come against us, but I think it's certainly indicative of the enemy's perseverance to employ whatever means is necessary to trip us up. So the adversaries have tried to join ranks and weaken from within, and now that didn't work, so now they turn to direct attacks. Bible commentator Henry Ironside, he said this, if they cannot have a hand in the work, well then they will do their best to ruin the work. And their response to this refusal to their petition to partner, I think reveals their true intent. That these guys didn't truly want to partner with the children of Israel and worship together with their God. What they wanted to do was weaken the children of Israel from within. And when that didn't happen, then they begin to attack. And we'll see here, they attack in three different ways. The first is they seek to discourage the workers. The second is they trouble these builders. And then finally, the third one is they falsely accuse them to the king. Have you been there? Have you set out to follow God's leading and God's direction only to have people in your life or maybe even your own conscience just sort of telling you these things determined to discourage you? Things like, oh what? Now you're going to get all spiritual? You've tried these things before. How many times have you tried these things before and failed? What makes you think this time is going to be any different? Voices that are come into our lives to discourage us and just to give us give up. Or perhaps in your case, it's been those that have risen up to trouble you. To essentially push you to the place where you're tempted to conclude, you know what, it's just not worth it. All this hassle, all this difficulty. I had so much peace before I committed myself to God. Now i got all these issues and things i got to deal with and people getting on my back. It's not worth it. They've troubled you to the point of giving up. Or perhaps, in conjunction with your new determination, to walk more intimately with Jesus, the false accusations start coming. And they begin flying. And people begin to question your motives and your intentions and your methods. Have you been there for any of these things? Or is it just me? These are the attacks of the enemy. And sadly, many times those attacks have been at least partially effective to sort of derail us a little bit. And the reason why I say partially is because though they may have temporarily thrown you off, you or I off track, they don't need to derail us forever. So skip down, if you will, all the way down to the last verse, verse 24. Notice what it says there. Then the work of the house, excuse me, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, plan D was a letter writing campaign falsely accusing the Jewish people or accusing the Jewish people. And plan D worked. Or at least it worked in this particular instance. And it temporarily stopped the Jews from accomplishing their building project. And again though, I say temporarily because the Jews will eventually return to the job as we're going to see when we move into chapter 5 and beyond. But nonetheless, the point for today at least, the attacks of the adversary were at least temporarily effective in hindering the work of God. I hear that and no doubt you think, well, that's not very encouraging. 
It's not. This is not an encouraging passage of Scripture. And I don't believe this is designed to be an encouraging passage of Scripture. Not all of Scripture is encouraging. I, I hate to bring up people's names, but I'm going to. It's not all Joel Osteen. You know, there are some aspects of Scripture that aren't designed to make you go away with a big smile and feel rosy and warm inside. There are some parts of Scripture that are designed to warn you and to cause you to walk away from that scene not feeling all rosy and happy, but to be sober because you're concerned about the attacks of the enemy upon your life and that he wants to bring you down. This is one of those passages. It's a passage that is meant to cause you to be sober, for you to stop and to stop right in your tracks and lead you to say, oh man, I better be on my guard. Because there is a roaring lion seeking me to devour me. I need to pay a little bit more attention. A few years ago, I was out trimming the bushes. Because I'm a man. And that's what we do. So I was outside trimming the bushes with the electric trimmers. And as I was doing so, the extension cord from time to time get, kept getting caught in the bushes itself. In the branches. And I would pull and I would tug. Now, what I should have done was stop, turn the thing off, go over, undo it here. But that admits defeat. And so I would not do that. And one of the times as I tugged on the trimmer, it sort of gave way and it came back right across the side of my face. And sort of grazed and trimmed my eyebrows and, and all that sort of stuff. Now, I didn't die. But I'll tell you this, I was not encouraged by that near catastrophe. And, that, and honestly, that catastrophe, what, what could have been, seriously, a big problem, that was not designed to encourage me. I wasn't encouraged, I was sobered. I, I essentially came to myself and the experience brought me to the place of telling me, look dude, you need to be more careful. And you need to pay close, closer attention to what you're doing or you're going to cut your face off or, or something like that. And so... As I did so, the extension cord from time to time, as I said, it got caught in these branches and I wasn't encouraged, but I was instead sobered. And I heard a voice in my head, which sounds a lot like my wife's voice, <laughs> which says, you need to be more aware and more careful. You can't just go on tugging at this thing. You've got to be careful and properly untangle it. And again, I don't think today's passage is designed so much to encourage us, encourage us as it is to sober us, to cause, cause us to look and take at our lives and take serious the schemes of the enemy that we need to be on our greater guard. And so as we continue to move through, let's look at verses 6 and 7 here for the rest of the story. It says, now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in those days, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the letter which was written in Aramaic and translated. So both, both of those verses there, they speak of letters that were written to the various kings falsely accusing the Jews of having evil intentions. So here's the interesting thing. Verse 6, is, it mentions King Ahasuerus. Verse 7, it mentions King Artaxerxes. And both of those men came after King Darius, who we read about in verse 24. All right, so what's going on here? It's, this is one of those most of us would read through and not really pay much attention to. But as we sort of dig into this a little bit, what exactly is going on? If a letter was written to this guy and this guy, and then that guy who came before those two guys made the decree, 
What is actually going on here? Well, it seems this, that there is a technique that the author is using here that he has sort of gone away from the chronological events of the story that he has been telling us in order to give us other examples as well from history. So remember, Ezra, 10, 11 chapters in the book, I think it's 10 chapters, 10 chapters in the book, Ezra himself doesn't come into the book until chapter 6 or chapter 7. And the, the whole length of the book spans a long period of time. And so Ezra is writing about events that didn't happen in his day, but he's communicating that to us as an historian would do as well. And so the technique that he is using here is to give other examples of opposition that came to the post-exile Jews as well, things they had to put up with. And so his point is simply to make the point that the adversaries were strong and they were repeated, and that they would come again and again and again against this nation. So Ahasuerus reigned, we know, from roughly the years 485 B.C. to 465 B.C. And if you're familiar with the book of Esther, Ahasuerus is mentioned there. He's the key player, mentioned some 28 times in the book of Esther. He's the king during that period, 485 to 465. Artaxerxes, he becomes the king of Assyria, or of the Medes and the Persians, I should say, from 464 to 424. And Artaxerxes, he becomes prominent in the Bible book of Nehemiah. So when we get to him there, we'll look at him. These two letters then were written sometime between the years 485 and 424. And they were passed on and they, get, they just hassled the Jews. The time period we're talking about, remember, 485 to 424, the time period we're looking at is around the year 538. This is when Darius was the king. Cyrus initially, and then Darius became the king. And so, again, these two letters from different time periods they're designed simply to demonstrate the varied and repeated attempts to discourage the Jews from accomplishing that which they had set their hearts to accomplish. So let's take a look at the letters. Verse 7. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates, they wrote to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Continuing, Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, they wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. It said this, Rahum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. That's a lot of opposition. A lot of names there, isn't there? Verse 11, And this is the copy of the letter they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. Well, the province beyond the river is the way that the Medes and the Persians referred to what we know of as the land of Israel. The governor of that land, according to Cyrus, is this guy, Zerubbabel. So, verse 12, in the province beyond the river, it says, And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem, and they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Well, so here's a clue, by the way, of the timing of things. So remember, when Ezra chapter 4 begins, even Ezra chapter 3, the Jews have returned to Jerusalem and got all the materials to do what? Rebuild the, the temple. Here, 
The accusation that is brought against them is that they're rebuilding the city and rebuilding the walls of the city and all these particular things as well. They're not finishing the walls and they're not repairing the foundations in the beginning of the chapter, so that's how you know that we're talking about multiple events from a long period of time just to give us a demonstration of all of the opposition that came against them. Verse 13 says, Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and these walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, that is their taxes, and the royal revenue will be impaired. And we know you can make the government angry in one way or another. Don't pay your taxes. And they'll come and they'll find you. Is John Shetler here? Our tax man, by the way? We have a tax guy here at the church. I love you, John, by the way. Please don't put me on that list. All right, now back to our adversaries. Verse 14 says, Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, plus we don't like these people. They didn't say that, but therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste before. We made known to the king that if we make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Well, is there any truth to these accusations? Have the Jews in times past been a rebellious city? Have they been hurtful to kings and provinces? Was sedition stirred up from within in the days of old? The answer, as you know, we went through Second Chronicles, the answer is yes. Yes and yes. They were a rebellious city. They were hurtful to kings and provinces. And in times past, they did make repeated attempts to stir up sedition. So all of those things are true of Israel's past but they're not necessarily true of their present. And just because those things occurred in Israel's past doesn't mean that they are their present motivation. So I think that brings up a fifth attempt of the enemy to derail us from the track that God has us set to, and that is to bring up our past. And so we have seen, first, he tries to infiltrate us and get us to compromise. Secondly and thirdly, he tries to discourage us and frustrate us to get us to the point where we say, you know, it's just not worth the hassle anymore. Fourthly, if those don't work, he'll simply lie against us and falsely accuse us. And if none of those things then work to squelch us, then he'll delve into our past. And he'll go through our records and he'll find out areas where we have previously failed. And he does so so that he can plaster those areas, those failures, if you will, all over town, making sure that everyone knows just what sort of a guy or a gal that they are really dealing with. Now, no doubt, many of us here have a past. Things in our past, pre-Christ days, that we would just as soon forget. Your adversary isn't as willing to, to forget as you would like him to. Because he knows that bringing those things up into your mind and into your heart will likely cause you to become disheartened and lead you to give up. And so he'll condemn you, leading you to conclude that this whole idea, the idea of being all, all in with God and going where God is leading, was one, just one big foolish idea. Who were you to think that God would use a person like you? And again, do many of us have a past? Sure we do. Well, every one of us has a past. Things that we're not proud of. The Apostle Paul, he said this in Romans chapter 6, 
the context is, is a little bit different, what he was, the argument that he was making, but there's a key phrase in there that I want to apply to what we're talking about. It says, what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Now, Paul, again, was making a different argument altogether, but the point that I'm making is every one of us in our lives, we have things that we are ashamed of. There are things that we hope our kids will never find out about us. There are things we hope that never gets out and gets put on the front page. Local pastor, did you know what he did when he was 16 years old? You know, there's things in our past that we don't want people to know about. Even the Apostle Paul had a past that he was shameful of. Remember, the Apostle Paul vehemently opposed Christ. The Apostle Paul forced followers of Christ to blaspheme and deny the name of Jesus or to be executed if they didn't. They said he even authorized the putting to death of men and women that refused to do so. And so all of us have been there. All of us have past that we wish we could just wipe clean from the record books the problem is when we look back on our past and we let it define our futures we all have a past we can't get rid of it but when we look back on our past and we let it define our uh, define our futures that's the problem and that's what we can never let the enemy to tempt us to do so the attack of the enemy is to use our past to condemn us, to convince us that we're not worthy or we are unworthy to participate in the work of God and thus just to give up on the work of God. And I would just say to you, don't do it. Don't give up just because of this past that you might have. Don't let your past define your present. So again, to quote the Apostle Paul, this is from 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The new has come. And that's great stuff. Alright, we're new creations in Christ. But notice these next few verses because this is fantastic. I shared this with a group of friends last night and it just spoke to my heart this week. He says, all of this is from God. This whole idea of being a new creation and so on is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is this. That in, Let me explain that he says. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you. That speaks of you. Now, let's continue here. And in addition to reconciling us to Him, He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal to the world that is out there through us. He uses us to help people come to the place where they can be reconciled in a relationship with God. God making His appeal through us. And so, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see that? So if the devil, or some earthly adversary, or even your own little voice inside your head, seeks to bring up your past with the purpose of getting you to abandon your future, well then you turn around and you embrace it. And you simply say, yeah, you know, that's right. I was a dirtball. I was a thief. I was a drunk. I was a drug addict. I was an adulterer. I was a homosexual. I was a fornicator. I was a brawler. I was a blasphemer. I was every one of those things and lots, lots more. But I'm no longer that now. You know what, friend? The list could go on and it could go on and it could go on. But in Christ, you tell your friend, I'm a new creation. And I've been given a new responsibility. That of serving as Christ's ambassador. My new responsibility, I now go into a lost world and I find other brawlers and drunks and adulterers and thieves 
And I can say to them, friend, I am here to tell you that there's hope and freedom in Jesus. Jesus set me free and He can do the exact same thing for you. So if the enemy attacks you with your past, you turn it around on him and use it as a testimony for what God has done in your life and the ministry that He has given you now uh, to bring about reconciliation to those that still remain lost. Well, let's go back to verse 17. It says, Now the king, he sent an answer to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting, he said. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I've made a decree and search has been made and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Verse 21, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? And so the work stops. And you know, obviously, that's a bummer. That's a, this is a stinking place to end our study today. Many times we are derailed from that path God would have us on by our own determination. So the attacks come in and they're strong, but the decision to stay on the track is our own, isn't it? Sometimes, though, the circumstances are what they are. And another enters in and sort of dictates, in this case, that the work cannot continue. And that's what's happening in this particular instance. Now look at verse 23. So when the copy of the letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, with great joy, it doesn't say that, but I suspect, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and by power they made them to cease. And then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius the king. Of Persia. So again, not a very encouraging place for us to stop, but certainly a sobering place for us to stop. That God desires, we know, a good thing for each of us. And that God is continually stirring our hearts to move forward. And while that is happening, at the same time, your adversary, ultimately the devil, seeks to hinder you from that growth. From experiencing that good thing that God desires to do. And we all need to be very aware of that reality. But I want to close with these verses. Two verses that we looked at before. Two verses that are new. And I think these verses are directly from the heart of God to each of us. It says this. 1 Peter 3, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Because your adversary the devil prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then because he's doing that, Paul tells us in Ephesians, Put on, therefore, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And having done all to stand, that you will stand firm. And all of that because we know in 1 John 4 that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, uh, perhaps even a little bit I don't know, shaken, scared maybe even? Are there all these adversaries that are out to get me? I'm not strong enough. I can't withstand them and myself and the devil and the world system. 
And Lord, that's a very true statement. In myself and in ourselves, we can't. But again, Lord, that verse, greater is he that is in us than in the world. And Lord, we know that, Lord, by your empowering, that we can stand. And so, Lord, I pray just the most significant lesson for each of us is that perhaps we would go about our day now, today and this next week, with our eyes a little more open. So just being aware, Lord, of the, the enemy and his schemes against us. Lord, truly that we would take every thought captive and sort of run it through, Lord, uh, the sift of the Word of God. Lord, we would take it to mind the things that we do and the places that we go, the things that we allow to enter into our hearts and our minds and our eye gate and all these things. And we just even taking a moment to evaluate Could this be a scheme of the enemy, the evil one, to trip me up? Lord, I honestly think that in this room we all love you. We desire to know you. We want your work in our lives. Lord, any commitments that we have made of late were sincere. And so, Lord, we just... uh, We just humbly ask, Lord, that our eyes would be firmly fixed on You. And we believe that You need to do that. You need to just sort of lift our chin so that our eyes are fixed on something other than this world that is around us. And to do that work, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.